everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Amy Foster, and what a privilege it is to be here with you, and what a privilege it is to be able to be together and proclaim the name of Jesus. We are blessed. So thanks for being here with us today. Um, I'm going to start on a real positive note. How many of you have ever experienced identity theft? Wave your hand at me. Yeah, well, here's a cheery thought. In the United States today, an identity gets hacked every two seconds. Yeah, it's happening right now where we sit. Don't get up and run out. I think we're safe. Um, if, you've, if it's happened to you, you know how damaging and far-reaching the consequences can be. Here's how it usually works. A criminal, a thief, takes some of your accurate information, maybe your birthday, your name, your social security information, and then they combine it with some inaccurate information. And when they do that, they've totally corrupted your identity. The last time it happened to me, um, they applied for some credit cards. They used my name and my birthday and my social security number, but they used a different address so that all those new credit cards wouldn't actually come to me, they would go to them. They take accurate information and corrupt it with the inaccurate, and when that's done, they have totally changed the identity that they started with, and they use it oftentimes always really for their own selfish and destructive purposes. So one of the great difficulties that the church, the first century church is struggling with is Jesus' identity is being hacked. I don't know if it's happening every two seconds, but it is happening frequently and often. Um, his very identity is being attacked and they're trying to alter it. And John is writing here to warn these new believers and also to encourage them that they already have all the tools they need to defend the identity of Jesus. But even more than that, they have tools that will protect themselves from being deceived and carried away. And this is critically important because at the core of Jesus' identity is the gospel message. And when Jesus' identity is being attacked, the gospel is being attacked. So John is writing with a warning and also with an encouragement. The gospel is under attack, but you have tools at the ready to defend the gospel. Now, we've already talked a little bit about Ephesus. It was quite a cosmopolitan city, but we know the believers there didn't gather in megachurches the way we do today. They gathered in smaller communities, so there were many communities all over the city. These would have been house churches, but something consistently was happening in all of these different settings, and it was um, this battle over Jesus' identity and um, the truth of the gospel. So what we know about all these churches in Ephesus and, and really the whole New Testament church, there really were three kinds of people gathering together as part of the New Testament church. There were the Christians who were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ exactly as the apostles had taught it. That group was there. There were also participants in the church who were inclined to corrupt that gospel by bringing in other things, sometimes Jewish practices and old Jewish laws. There were also some who were participating in the church and they were inclined to corrupt the gospel by bringing in some pagan things and some worldly philosophies. So all three were participating in the first century church and that's what John is writing about today. So I want you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter two and we're gonna begin reading in verse 18. 
Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. All right, so he begins here by greeting them as children, and immediately you hear that patriarchal, loving, gentle, protective, fatherly tone, but you also hear that strong, authoritative tone that really only John could speak with in this moment, and he's referring to the time that they're living in as the last hours, and there are two important things I want you to remember about this term, last hours. Um, The first is, when he says last hours, he is talking about a very specific period of time, a specific period of time in God's timeline for the whole world, and what he's letting us know, what he's reminding us there, there is a set sequence of events for how God is interacting with the world, and God determined it, and God is not surprised, and God is in control. So that's the first thing we want to remember when we consider last hours. The second thing I want you to consider is he talks about the last hours here. This is a technical term. It's a theologically technical term. And it's it's talking about a very specific period of time. So I want you to imagine a history book that gives you a timeline and you show certain events marked off. At the moment when Jesus um, was crucified and resurrected, that began the last hours. And so you'd see a shaded line continue on after Jesus' death and resurrection, and it continues today because that period of time will last until Jesus returns. And it's called last hours because at that moment when Jesus returns, it will conclude everything the world as we have known it. And it will bring in God's final plan of salvation for the world. So if you've got that visual in your mind of that timeline, you know that the time we live in right now is also within the last hours. And he tells us here what's happening in the last hours is many antichrists have come. Now John is the only writer who ever uses the term antichrist. And that's interesting to me, but he's not the first person to mention these people, these people who act with a spirit of antichrist. Actually, Jesus was the first one to mention them. In Matthew, Jesus says, false Christs and false prophets will come in during these last hours. We see warnings in Acts, in First and Second Timothy, and in Second Peter. They're not called antichrist, but they're referred to as deceitful spirits, deceitful teachers, false teachers, Fierce wolves who come in among the flock, scoffers and deceivers. And so we know that all of these are people who are working with the spirit of Antichrist. So it's not talking about just only one person. It's many people all working with the same spirit. Now what does that word mean? Anti means opposed to. So you can take this quite literally. Antichrist means opposed to Christ. These were the false teachers teaching false doctrines. They would take many, many different forms. Some would deny that Jesus is the holy son of God sent to save the world. Some would actually exalt themselves against God and deny some of God's words. And we know from Revelation that one will actually put himself in the place of God and claim to be God. But at their core, every single one of them, they attack the identity and the work of Jesus. And so they are working to destroy the power of the gospel. 
So John writes about these antichrists here and they're false teachers and he says they went out from us. And when he says us, he specifically is talking about the apostles and their teaching. They're teaching about the life of Jesus. So we know that these antichrists are not in agreement with the apostles, the very men who heard Jesus and saw him and touched him and walked with him. And more importantly than that, they weren't just witnesses to Jesus. The apostles were commissioned by Jesus. He commissioned them, he called them, and he sent them out to do a very specific thing, to tell his story in his name. So these are the people that the Antichrist are disagreeing with here. They have gone away from the authority and the teaching of the apostles, the very ones who Jesus had commissioned to do this job. And it says they went out, um, so went out here, obviously that, that could mean that they were participating within these house churches. Um, it may mean that they were involved in all these forms of life with us, but John's making it pretty clear, even though they participated with us, they went out, they don't share the same spirit we share. They don't. They don't make the same confession we make, which is Jesus Christ is Lord. They don't appear to be born from above because you're reborn from above when you claim Jesus Christ as Lord. So he uses the words they and us to draw a pretty severe distinction here between them and us. And he's telling us um, we're not like them and we never were like them. I think when he, when he draws this distinguishing line and he keeps using they and us, you know, I just immediately envisioned a football stadium and one crowd roaring for one team, and one crowd roaring for another team. Maybe you thought of it like that too. They are on opposite teams. So as I outlined this passage, and I was teaching it, and I kept hitting hard, they, us, they, us, it made me cringe just a little bit, because I don't need to tell you, we live in incredibly divisive and antagonistic time. And we are all so entrenched in our camps, and it makes me uncomfortable to lay out this passage looking like camps. But John's laid it out that way. John has determined that it's important to distinguish between truth and lies. It's important to distinguish because not so we'll feel proud and arrogant about being on the right side, so we'll be brokenhearted about the reality that people who are on the other side, they are dying, they are perishing. It doesn't just divide the truth from the lies, it divides the eternally living against those who are eternally perishing. And so I think we can look at this, them and us, and we can draw these strong distinguishing lines so that we know the difference, not because we wanna be puffed up with pride because we're on the right side of that line, because we want to be sobered by the reality that there are people dying over these truths and these lies. And so I want to just um, encourage us not to err towards pride, but instead just be brokenhearted about this because we're supposed to be the sweet aroma of Christ among the perishing. And that's why we're going to look at the difference between them and us. We're going to talk about antichrist lies and the truths that we believe. John wants his dear children to wise up and learn how to recognize Antichrist, and learn how to recognize lies. So first, these people, these secessionists who've gone out from the church, um, they failed the unity test. 
Right away, that's how they can be identified. They aren't united to the other Jesus followers by a core set of beliefs. They aren't united to the apostles and their teacher, uh, their teaching. And when it says they went out, I thought, you know, that's no careless use of words from John there because going out is the opposite of abiding. And John's gonna talk a lot about abiding. And so these aren't people who abide, they're people who go out and they don't remain in unity with other believers or with core teaching. Now it does say they had participated with us. That definitely suggests to me they had been participating with the house churches and the believers in Ephesus. It suggests that they shared in all the external forms of community life. They probably shared in all the external forms of spiritual life and worship but they did not share the internal form of that spiritual life because John tells us twice, they were never one of us. They lacked the signs of authentic Christians. Now, historians tell us that there were uh, groups who were leaving the church and, and fighting the church at this time, and they weren't just participating for a while and getting mad and going home, taking their marbles and going home. It wasn't that. They were sending people back in, sometimes covertly, in an organized manner, sending people back in to participate with the New Testament church with a desire to draw people out. Paul writes about the same thing in Galatians. He says they were false brothers that were smuggling in lies like spies. Okay, so a warning is necessary, and John is warning the church, draw sharp lines between them and us. Now, the conflict that he's addressing here, he's always going to go back, and his defense is going to be the identity of Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he was, and the work that he has done. And we know from history that there were a, there were a lot of antagonistic groups rising at this time that are all working against the New Testament church. Gnosticism was one of those groups. It was an early effort to reshape the gospel, to change the identity of Jesus. There were other philosophies out there. There was an idea called dualism that was very opposed to the apostles' teaching, another idea called docetism. And they were all distinct, but at their core, they were all going after the identity of Jesus. John never tells us which group he's confronting. He only tells us he's defending the person and work of Jesus. You're gonna see that all through these letters here. So I wanna tell you a little bit about Gnostics because um, it's curious that they were having all these initial conflicts with the Gnostics because they shared some things in common with the New Testament church. They did believe in the idea of salvation. Eternal salvation was available to some. They believed in one supreme deity or one God, and they believed in this idea that there are heavenly forces at work all in the universe. So they could share all of those beliefs in common with the New Testament Christians, and they could even use that commonality as a way to attach themselves to the new church of Jesus Christ. But they differed in a great way. They differed over the identity of Jesus. Gnostics and dualists believed that holiness could have nothing to do with anything that was material or physical. Holiness was only spiritual, and holiness could not participate. Holiness would be corrupted if it participated with anything physical. So here's the problem with that. Um, 
When you say Jesus isn't fully God and fully man, then you're corrupt, corrupting Jesus' identity and the gospel. Think about this. A holy God, if you're, if you're a dualist or a Gnostic and you're going to say that what is spiritual can't be touched by what is material, you can't have a holy son of God born in a baby's body, can you? And you definitely cannot have a holy son of God bleeding and dying on a cross. So these were the big distinctions that set them apart. If holy God didn't come in human form, ladies, that's a big difference for us because we don't have a powerful gospel if holy God didn't come in human form. We have no hope of salvation because we know God's story is laid out from the beginning of the Old Testament. A sacrifice is required to atone for sins, a perfect sacrifice. 1 Peter 1.18 um, says, knowing you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Jesus had to be divine, or his sacrifice would not have been sufficient. Only a holy God could uh, satisfy God's holy standard. Jesus also had to be human. He had to be a human body that could hang on a cross and bear the lashes, and take the blows, and suffer the torture, and experience the death that human beings deserved. Because we know all through the scriptures, and Hebrews 9 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So God's justice demanded that. So if Jesus, if Jesus is not both fully God and fully man, then that sacrifice on the cross was nothing, and we're without hope. That's what the Gnostics and these other philosophies are claiming here. Gnostics also claimed that um, special people, sort of like gurus, had special knowledge, and their special knowledge taught some of them the way to eternal life. Those are big differences in the things that the apostles are teaching. So strong feelings regularly clashed between the New Testament church and the apostles and John and the people, the Gnostics and the folks teaching these kind of philosophies. Church history is full of this clash. One historian, an ancient historian, told a story that's been repeated in every church history book that I read, and it's that a famous clash between John and a famous Gnostic, his name was Serenthus, and the clash actually happened in Ephesus in a bathhouse. So if you've traveled in this part of the world, you know that isn't something dirty or naughty. Bathhouses were these big, public, very sophisticated places where men went to bathe, and apparently the clash happened where both men are only wearing a towel, and as the historian reports, John's so angry he rushes out of the bathhouse, still wearing only a towel and a scowly face, and this is what he says. Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So that's a great story. For John, he's drawing a line, no mixed bathing with Gnostics. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Just an aside, when I was very young, my church used to send all the kids out to this Christian camp. And it was so puzzling to me because the swimming pool at the camp had this big sign that said, no mixed bathing. And I thought, what in the world is that? And I quickly learned at this camp, boys and girls could not be in the swimming pool at the same time. And I always wondered, where did that term or that idea come from, mixed bathing? And honest to goodness, when I read this story about John, I thought, <laughs> that's where mixed bathing came from. 
I don't know. Um, that story's not in our Bible, but I will tell you, um, church history is full of the conflict and the clash um, between these different philosophies. We know that the struggle to protect Jesus' identity was real. We know that the Gnostics, the dualists, the Docetists, they were all fighting against the first century church. That clash with the Gnostics was a clash that extended more than 300 years. There are still conflicts today, we're gonna to talk about some of those later, that we don't call them conflicts with Gnostics, but they're the same ideas, and they keep coming up. It was necessary then to call out the sharp uh, differences, and it's necessary today because the gospel is at stake. We cannot corrupt the identity of Jesus and lose the gospel. So John begins by shining a light on them, the Antichrist, and now he's gonna shine the light back on us. Begin, uh, continue reading with me in verse 20. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So here is something that sets the Jesus followers apart. We've already seen the Antichrist are set apart by their lack of unity. Um, the Jesus followers have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, anointed is also a word that John's the only one who's using this word. Um, the actual word is chrisma, anointing. Paul writes about the exact same experience with a term we're a little more familiar with. Paul writes about being baptized by the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's what he's talking about here. It's a reference to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they had an Old Testament understanding of the Holy Spirit, and that would include if a person was being consecrated for a very special and a sacred purpose, they would be anointed with oil. A priest would be anointed with oil before he would begin serving God. A king would be anointed with oil. We also see in the Old Testament that we'll have these occasions where a specific person, um, the Spirit of God would dwell within them because God had a task for them. He wanted them to speak his words or lead his people his way. So you would see these instances of the Spirit of God being on or anointing maybe a prophet or a king again. So the New Testament really draws on that Old Testament understanding of the Holy Spirit, and it describes this experience that we all get because of Jesus of receiving the Holy Spirit because we believe in him, being anointed by God's Spirit. It happened first at Pentecost in Acts chapter two. Y'all should go home this afternoon and read about that. It's amazing. And ever since Pentecost, the moment a person believes in Jesus Christ, in an instant, they have God's Holy Spirit in them. That's what he's writing about, and he's saying, but this sets you apart. You have been anointed by God's Spirit, and the Spirit of God is given to you to guide you and to direct you. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It is God who has anointed us and has put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we know from the whole of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit is our helper. He helps us, he advises us, he strengthens us, he prays for us, that is amazing. He helps us recall and remember the words and teachings of Jesus. He helps us know how to apply those things in our lives. What John is really focusing on right here is the Spirit's ability to enlighten us, to open our eyes to spiritual truths. 
And the reality is, for every one of us, the Holy Spirit was working in us when we heard the news about Jesus, and that's the only reason we were able to believe in the first place. So John is saying, you have the Spirit's anointing, and because of that, you have knowledge. You already have knowledge because the Spirit has already guided you to truth. So as a result of the Spirit's anointing, all of us, we know truth about Jesus Christ. And the use of the word know there is very significant because it's not this kind of know, intellectual knowledge. That's definitely a part of it. They knew the identity of Jesus, but it's talking about experiential knowledge. You know. You know because God's spirit is in you. You know because you are a new creation now. You know because it has happened in your life. Not a knowing up here in your head, but a knowing here in your heart. Jeremiah, years and years before, had prophesied this. He said, hey, God's going to write his words on your heart, and then you're going to know him. People aren't going to need to teach you about him. You're going to know him. That's what John's saying here. Because you've been anointed by the Spirit, you have that kind of knowledge about God and about Jesus. And when you have that kind of knowledge about Jesus' identity, it shouldn't be difficult for you to spot lies about Jesus' identity. Because John, again, draws this sharp line. There's the truth and there's lies. And they don't mix. Well, this is a great encouragement to the new church. They get this, this uh, news that they're protected. There's something built into them that helps them not wander out into the lies that are being spread among them. Because what the Antichrist wants to do is ultimately and eternally very dangerous. What the spirit of Antichrist wants to do is destroy people's souls, prevent them from ever believing the true identity of Jesus. Or for those of us who have believed, he wants to destroy our fellowship. He wants to cause doubt and confusion and division within us, within our relationship with God, and among us in the church. And so John is writing here, hey, you've been protected. You already have the spirit and you know. So he draws these sharp lines between the lies of the Antichrist and the truth that you know. And he says, lies and truth, oil and water. They do not mix. They're never going to overlap. They aren't blurry. And I read that and I have to wonder, what would John say about the world we live in today? What would he say? In the world we live in today, truth is not fixed. Truth is relative. It depends on how you experience truth. What is true for me is all right, but if you have a different truth, that's okay too. Relativism and pluralism make truth an unfixed and a changing thing all the time. I wondered for about a half a second, and then I thought, I don't wonder what John would say. I know exactly what he would say. He would say those are lies. There is one truth, it's unchanging, and it's fixed, and everything else is a lie. And then he would very kindly and very sternly say, so now, dear children, remember the truth that you have come to know. Remember the truth, and you are protected. Because those words worked for them, and they work for us, don't they? Remember the truth that you know. Remember the truth about Jesus Christ, holy son of God, who came in the flesh, who died on a cross, who rose from the dead. Ladies, I think the way, we, um, the way we hold on to those truths is we know our gospel backwards and forwards. We know our gospel here by understanding and knowing the scriptures that explain the gospel, and we know our gospel here 
by understanding and explaining how we have experienced it. You have Bible verses and you have a personal testimony. I used to be separated from God and all I wanted was my own way and now I'm in fellowship with God and I can't believe it, but I want his way. That's the gospel message. Um, that We need to know our gospel truth backward and forward. We need to know our gospel truth thoroughly because the Holy Spirit has given us that truth. And when we know it thoroughly, we're not going to be tempted to believe lies. We will be so protected. Now John swings the spotlight back on them. Look what he says in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Okay, these people, the core of what they're doing is denying that Jesus is the Christ. And that's huge. That's the ultimate identity theft. Now, to deny Jesus is the Christ, this is going to sound silly, but I've grown up in church, and sometimes I have to remind myself, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Okay, maybe you need to stop and remember that too. Christ is Jesus' title. Okay, it's the Hebrew word Messiah, and it's the Greek word Christ, the Holy One sent from God to save the world. That's what they're denying. Jesus is not the Holy One sent from God to save. That's not Jesus. John has no problem saying, you're a liar. That's a lie. Some were also claiming to love and know the same God that the Jesus followers loved and knew. They believed in a historical Jesus, a man who came, but he was not a holy son of God. John says, no, if you reject Jesus the son, you do not know the father. You do not live in relationship with him because they are linked. The only way we know the father is through the sacrifice of the son. If you reject one, you are rejecting both. Jesus makes this very clear in John 14, 6. Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ladies, do you see the parallels between the world that we live in today? We're very open to spirituality. We're very open to the idea of an ultimate you know, being, a great being in the sky, the great man upstairs. But we're also very open to all roads lead to God. All roads lead to God. No, that's a lie if we believe in God the Father and Christ his Son. People are unrighteous sinners, and we are unable to be in fellowship with a holy God unless a Savior makes a way for us. No Jesus, no God. John three sixteen tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I love that it begins with God. It begins with God's love and God's desire to be in fellowship with us. And so it has to be by God's plan and God's design that says it happens through the sacrifice of my son. So he is... um, 
explained this lie that you don't both have the same God, you aren't experiencing the same fellowship with the same God, even if they're claiming that. Now he shines the light back on the New Testament church and the, the believers here. Look at verse 24, what he says. I may have read this already, sorry. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. He repeats this twice. Let what you heard abide in you. And the core of what they heard was the true teaching about Jesus from the apostles. Let those words abide. We're gonna talk about abide again today. We've talked about it before, but John's writing. So we're gonna talk about abide a bunch. It's his favorite word. I think it's my favorite word too. Abide means to remain, to continue, to tarry, to persevere, to live with. I think of it as settle down and be at home with something. And do you know what the noun version of the word abide is? Abode, to make the place where you live. It's really a picture of making your home with something. Now, this is Amy's version of abide. This is not theology. You can toss it if you want, but here's how I think about abiding. Uh, when my husband and I were first married, he moved completely out of his bachelor home, and he moved into my home with my three sons, a home already full of furniture. All the cabinets were filled. All the pictures were already hanging on the wall. He left all his stuff and moved into our house with us, and I worried about that. And after a few weeks, I said, I'm really sorry if you miss your home. And he gave the best answer in the world. That's just stuff. Home is with you. That's abiding. That's what this is. That's how I remember what it means to abide. So for me, I make these truthful words of God the thing that I'm at home with, the things I hold on to, the things I cling to, the things that are welcoming and safe and certain and secure for me forever. It's the same idea of fellowship. I make my home with God's words. And the beautiful thing here is God, you know, John says, let these words abide in you, and then you know what instantly happens? God enters that abiding, and you are abiding with Jesus, and you are abiding with God. He enters the abiding when we make his word home for us. So I think it's really important to part at, point out this idea of fellowship with God. God did all the work to establish that fellowship. He did the work. But once we have the fellowship, the relationship becomes two-sided. And we contribute something to it at this point. What we do, what we cling to, what we persevere in, what we tarry with, what we make our home, all of those things affect the quality of our fellowship with God. They affect the quality of our intimacy with God. This two-sided idea, it's all through the Bible, not just the New Testament. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The order there is important. Other places, he says, you seek me, and then I'll let you find me. He says, you ask, and I'll answer. Abide with the words and the truth of the gospel message. That is a way we draw near to God. God doesn't overwhelm us with fellowship if we don't turn to him first and seek him and be at home with him. 
So abiding is a two-part process. John says you don't need a special guru kind of knowledge here. You need to abide with the words that you've already heard. And when you abide with those words, God enters that communion with you, and you have God, and you have Christ, his son, and better than that, you have eternal life. You have eternal life. That's the promise here. Look at John 5, 24 on your verse sheet. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. The promise when we abide with these words, it, the promise is eternal life with God. And that means living in intimate fellowship with the eternal God for eternity. But ladies, it doesn't mean it starts on the day you die. Look at that verse. You have passed from death to life. Your eternal life has already started now. The quality of that life is dependent on your abiding, how you make your home with God. Verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Okay, one more short blast of light on the Antichrist. They want to deceive you in case there's any confusion up to this point. Just like the people who want to steal your identity today, they are not after your best interest. They want to deceive you. They want you to move into the darkness with them. But you, you do not need to fear. You don't need to be vulnerable because the anointing of the Holy Spirit abides with you. The same way John has been encouraging them, Hold on to the words. Terry, persevere with the words. Make your home with the word. Now he turns it on the other side and he says, and that spirit, it does the same thing with you. It clings to you. It makes its home with you. The Holy Spirit will never leave you. He will stick close to you and continue to witness to you, to speak to you in your soul, helping you understand and remember the true identity of Jesus. Now, it's a little tricky here, but I believe when he says you have no need that anyone should teach you, I don't think he's saying don't listen to teaching anymore. You don't get to get up and walk out at this point. <laughs> the truth is John's teaching in all these letters that he's writing. And the other important truth is we know that teaching is a spiritual gift given to people in the community of believers so that we will all grow and mature. So he, we can't make a case that he's saying you don't need to listen to any teaching anymore. I believe what he's saying is you have no need that anyone should teach you anything new about who Jesus is or what Jesus has done because you already know. You don't need any new teaching about a special way to get to God because the Holy Spirit has already opened your eyes and you know gospel truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There is no special handshake. There is no special level of new maturity. Um, the gospel is the gospel. Believe and you will be saved. You don't need any teaching outside of that how to know God. The gospel is powerful and it is simple and it will save your life. Okay, so two great gifts God has given to all of us to help us 
Identify lies and resist false teachers. The gifts are the word of God. It's constant and it's unchanging. And it's in his word that he tells us this is his holy son, came in the flesh, walked on the earth, died on a cross to pay for our sins. We have the word of God protecting us. We have the spirit of God protecting us. The spirit is also constant and unchanging and never leaves us. It was the spirit working in you that helped you believe the very first time and the spirit remains with you. Now, John doesn't express this here, but I think it's too important not to mention we have these great gifts, the word and the spirit. We have to consider um, they always work in unison. They always work in unison. They work to express God, so they're not going to express a contradictory thing. They will not oppose each other, and they will not work against each other. So you do have God's spirit in you, and God's spirit will cry out from time to time. But ladies, if you don't know this already, you still have your spirit in you, and your spirit will cry out from time to time also. And we are very inclined to think our spirit is God-talking. So if the word and the spirit always speak in unison, you have to always test the spirit. When you hear something in your soul speaking, you have to stop and say, does this completely agree with the word of God? Because if it doesn't, it's your spirit, and you don't need to listen to that, all right? So we've been given these great gifts. We need to learn how to use them. John's writing, be warned, but he is also really writing, be encouraged, Be encouraged because you're protected. And that's a timely message for them in the last hours. Um, Our history tells us that the Gnostics and the Docetists and all of these people, they continued to attack the New Testament church. They continued to try and tear apart the identity of Jesus and the gospel for hundreds of years. But you know what? God did something good with it. It was an incredibly refining process. Christian theology was birthed because of these attacks. Christian theology is the study and the understanding of the work and the words of God. That happened because of all these these attacks. It happened because they would no longer be able to turn to an apostle and say, hey, help us figure this out. You know the truth. John's the last man standing. So because of all of these attacks, the followers of Jesus drew together all the sacred words and writings. Ladies, We have the canon of the scripture because the gospel was attacked. The entirety of the apostles' teaching, Jesus' words, Jesus' actions, Jesus' teaching, they came together and they studied those words so that they could have a full, rich, complete understanding of what it means to live new life with God. We have orthodox, true beliefs, beliefs that unite all followers of Jesus today because the identity of Jesus was attacked. We have the creeds. We have great, rich theology. We know what is considered heresy, not orthodox, not true teaching, because all of this was in response to the gospel being attacked. What tried to destroy the gospel and the church strengthened it and benefits us to this day. What a good God we have. But the spirit of Antichrist still wages wars. We live in the last hour, so be wise, children, be wise. No one walks around today wearing a towel claiming to be an enemy of truth. I don't encounter that anyway. But there are plenty of ideas out there that are enemies of truth, and they seem so simple and so non-threatening, but at their core, they are attacking the identity of Jesus. I want to share just a few with you. 
Jesus wants me to be happy. Have you ever heard that? Here's what that is. We're elevating the mercy and grace of Jesus, and we are really diminishing his holiness. That changes his identity. Here's another one. Jesus is loving. He won't send anyone to hell. So we've taken his loving part of his identity, but his role as righteous judge, we've corrupted that. We've changed Jesus' identity. And then there's just this subtle way of talking about fellowship with God today like he's some cosmic therapist. I call on him when I've got a little mess and I need him to straighten it out and I need a little peace, but I keep him out of all the other parts of my lives. He certainly doesn't get to tell me what to do. You're corrupting the identity of Jesus and God and the gospel. So those are dangerous words and those are lies. We need to be warned and not discouraged. We need to be encouraged. And the biggest encouragement, John reminds them here at the end, the victory's already been won. Look at verse 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. So the spiritual forces of Satan, the spirit of Antichrist, will continue to oppose God and Jesus during these last hours. But we have to remember the ultimate battle has already been won. When Jesus was resurrected, the penalty of sin and death and eternal separation from God was destroyed. And one day Jesus is coming back to claim his victory. And when he does... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus' true identity. Jesus is Lord. John is reminding them that that day is coming. That day is certain. It's based solely on Jesus' finished work. We will be reunited with him. That's a sure thing. But there's an interesting thought in here. The quality of that reunion will be based on how we've been abiding with God. We'll definitely be reunited with him. But what will that reunion look like for us? If we've made our home with him, if we've participated in this ongoing sweet fellowship with him, then John tells us the reunion will be full of confidence. No shame, no shrinking back. I tried to picture that, and here's the picture I got. You know, John sometimes describes Jesus as the bridegroom, and we are often, the church, described as the bride. So have you ever seen a bride shrink back as she was coming down the aisle? I've been to a lot of weddings. I did see that one time, and it didn't, <laughs> it didn't end well. What you normally see is the bride is working so hard to take those slow steps to the bridal march because everything in her wants to fly down that aisle and fling herself into the arms of her groom because she knows him. He's not a stranger waiting at the end of the aisle. She knows him. I think that's the experience we'll have when Jesus, our bridegroom, returns. If our abiding and our fellowship has been sweet, he will not be a stranger, and we will not be shrinking back. So looking forward to that, hoping for that, living for that, that's the motivation that we have to abide today. Persevere, hold tight, remain, tarry, Make your home with God, with Christ, with the Spirit, with the words. And just know as you do that, you are preparing yourself to fly down that aisle and throw yourself in the arms of your Savior. Let's pray. God, all we can say is thank you. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for having a plan to send your perfect son so that we could live in fellowship with you forever. Thank you. We're grateful. We praise you. We worship you. We honor you. And we can't even get our heads around how much you've loved us to do that for us. So thank you. I just pray that we would each have your strength and your power and a great desire in our heart to abide with you every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.